Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. This is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. By studying the words of the Buddha, we can see exactly what did he teach and learn those teachings, reflect on them, and practice them, moving the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This program focuses on using this book series, The Words of the Buddha, Volumes 2, all the way through Volume 13. Volume 1 is covered in our group learning program, which is on Sundays and Wednesdays. Using these books, Volumes 2 through 13, we cover 10 chapters per week. These books are easily accessible. You can download them for free from our website by going to buddhadailywisdom.com forward slash free Buddha books, or if you just go to buddhadailywisdom.com, click on the upper right corner, you'll see a button there that says free books, and all the books are listed there. You can download them for free. There's also printed versions that you can order from Amazon all over the world if you would prefer a printed copy, or you can take the downloaded copy and print it yourself if you'd like. That's also an option as well. Each week, the students in this program will read 10 chapters. There's the words of the Buddha. There's a reference that you can go look and see the original source. And there's explanations from me that will help you understand the words of the Buddha and how to implement them into your life practice. Then we come together like this each Saturday in order to give students an opportunity to study these teachings together. What we do is we first start with meditation, which we'll start here in a moment, doing meditation in order to clear the mind, prepare it for learning, and help it to retain the teachings for a longer period of time. Because by retaining the teachings in the mind, you can then apply them in daily life and actually see the benefit and the results of them. Then after we do our short meditation, each chapter, either myself or others will read the chapter I will teach the chapter, help you understand it, and then open up to any questions that you have from the reading that you've been doing or just from the learning that you're doing in class. If you haven't had a chance to actually read these chapters, we'll be doing it together as a class. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our program. Thank you for joining. Really pleased that you've decided to learn and practice the Buddhist teachings. I'd like to invite you all to join for meditation. So if you'd like to pull up a cushion or a chair and get ready for meditation, you can go ahead and do that. 
Uh, in this class, I don't usually give too much guidance with meditation because it's a shorter meditation period. And the people who join this program typically are a little bit further along and have developed their meditation practice, so they don't need quite as much guidance. But I do give a little bit of guidance for anybody who's new that's joining us and hasn't practiced breathing mindfulness meditation before. This is the style of meditation that the Buddha taught as a primary meditation in order to train the mind, moving it to enlightenment. But it's not the only thing that you need. There's a lot more that you need. And that's why we have these programs to help you learn and practice his teachings. Once you're comfortable in either the seated, lying, standing position, either in a chair or a cushion, go ahead and relax your hands and arms in the lap. Have your upper body erect and attentive. This will help keep the mind alert and attentive during the meditation. And then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here at the beginning of your meditation session, you're just looking to establish the breath. A nice, natural, steady breath. Breathing in through the nose experiencing the full breath and then wherever you get to the exhale then exhale through the nose the guidance that i provide might not necessarily sync up exactly where you're at in your breath and that's okay it's just a reminder to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose I'm going to do some chance to kind of ease us into meditation a little bit and then come back with some more guidance. You're welcome to join the chants if you know these. Potang mahakawanhang apiwate ami Sawakato mahakawata tammo Namang namasami Sopatipano mahakawato sawakasangho sanghang namami napmodasabhakawato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmorhasa Bhakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmorhasa Bhakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Iti Piso Mahakawa Arahang 
ชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาชาช
I would like to just remind you that this meditation we're doing before class is just a short little meditation, just almost like a little touch-up, right? If, if your glass is like three-quarters of the way full and you just pour a little bit of extra water in there just to kind of top it up, that's kind of what we're doing here before class. So if you feel like you would need more meditation before class, you're always welcome to do that before class and then join us here for this meditation. And of course, your meditation practice should have, you know, maybe two or three times a day that you're meditating on your own. This is just kind of a, a little touch up before class. So just keep that in mind that you can always meditate more prior to class. Last week in our class, we studied volume two and we studied chapters one through 10. And as we studied those chapters, what you most likely walked away with is the understanding that the Buddha really emphasized the Four Noble Truths. 
that the Four Noble Truths are just vitally important to anyone who's establishing a practice as part of the path to enlightenment. You would need to deeply understand and reflect and practice the Four Noble Truths in all situations. That's a lot of what last week's topics were about, along with cultivating wholesome relationships and some other kind of miscellaneous teachings that we covered. Well, this week, the chapters really kind of revolve around the Eightfold Path, because if you remember the Four Noble Truths, that fourth noble truth, the Buddha is pointing to the Eightfold Path and saying, this is the way to eliminate discontentedness. In the Four Noble Truths, he gives us what discontentedness is, the cause of it, the elimination of it, and then the complete path that leads to the elimination of discontentedness, which is the Eightfold Path. So this first chapter, as part of our study this week, chapter 11, is the actual Eightfold Path. I'm going to read this chapter and as we progress in the rest of the chapters, there's students who will be reading each chapter and then I'll teach and then open up to any questions that you guys have about the chapter itself or your reflections or the explanations that I've given either in class or as part of the book underneath of the actual chapter with the words of the Buddha. But this particular chapter, I'm going to read and teach and read and teach and read and teach because it's a longer chapter and I think it's easier to learn it that way, where typically the way that we'll do these chapters is someone will just read it, I will teach it, and then open up for any questions that you guys have. So here, chapter 11, it's titled The Noble Eightfold Path. And he called it The Noble Eightfold Path because during his lifetime, there was this caste system. There was, you know, these lower caste common people who were like laborers, farmers, things like this. And there were these upper class people, you know, kind of nobles, right? Even Brahmin, you know, Brahmin priests who were born into certain families. And it was believed at that time, whatever family you were born into, you were kind of destined for that life. So if you were born into a lower class family, you were kind of destined for that kind of lifestyle. And if you were born into an upper class family, then you were kind of seen as being better or noble. And the Buddha was kind of turning this belief upside down and saying, oh, no, no, it's not the family that you're born into that determines whether you're noble or not. What really determines whether you're noble is based on your actions, your conduct, your bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. So he helped people of the lower caste families realize that you can be noble as well by learning and practicing teachings that where you will gain wisdom and make wiser and wiser choices to have wholesome conduct. So the Eightfold Path and some of his other teachings, he refers to it as this, the Noble Eightfold Path. This is what leads to being noble or wise or practicing wholesome conduct. And the Eightfold Path is separated into three sections. There's the first section, which makes up right view and right intention, which we call wisdom. And then there's right speech, right action, right livelihood, which we call the moral conduct. And then there's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which we call mental discipline. And each section of the Eightfold Path aims to help a practitioner 
further develop their life practice to eradicate any unwholesomeness arising this wholesome conduct and this wholesome mental discipline. And you do that not through believing the teachings, but through learning them, reflecting on them, and practicing them to see the truth for yourself. Essentially, what he's doing in the Eightfold Path is he's exposing more of this natural law of gamma to you. It's not just right speech because the Buddha says it's right speech. He's basically helping you understand the natural laws of existence, the natural law of gamma, and showing you that if you speak with right speech, that you won't be causing harm to others, and therefore harm won't come to you. And likewise, if you practice right action, it's not just right action because the Buddha said it's right action. It's based on the natural law of gamma that by practicing right action, you won't be causing harm through your bodily actions. So therefore, harm won't come to you. So in this way, you're purifying your speech, you're purifying your actions. And then each step of the Eightfold Path is meant to purify a different part of one's life practice or of the mind. And by purifying each one of these factors along the path, then through this wisdom, through this guidance of the Eightfold Path, you will be making wiser, wholesome decisions, which will lead to more wholesome outcomes. Because whatever you put out into the world is what will come back to you. So by practicing and cleaning up your current life practice, by practicing the Eightfold Path, you will not be causing harm to others. And by doing this practice and learning it, reflecting on it and practicing it for an extended period of time over multiple months and years, you will be putting more and more wholesome decisions out into the world. So therefore, you're cleaning up any unwholesome decisions that you've made in the past where you weren't practicing these teachings. Because in the past, you didn't have the wisdom of these teachings. You had what the Buddha called as ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So once you gain the wisdom of these teachings and you're practicing them for longer and longer and longer periods of time, more and more people around you start understanding that you're putting out all this wholesomeness and more and more wholesomeness will come back to you. So that's a bit of an overview of the Eightfold Path, which volume one of the book series that I wrote and in the group learning program, I go into the Eightfold Path in a lot of detail. And here, I'll go through it in the detail that the Buddha provides. So this is the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is also the way of practice leading to the elimination of unwholesome gamma. By you practicing the Eightfold Path, you're practicing all these wholesome teachings and you will extinguish any unwholesome gamma production. So remember, gamma is cause and effect or action and result, essentially the results of our decisions. So if we put out wholesome decisions into the world through our life practice, then wholesomeness will come back to us over extended periods of time. But we don't practice these teachings because we're expecting something wholesome to occur for us. We're just doing it because we know it's the right thing. It's the wholesome thing to do. So the Eightfold Path starts out this way. In what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness? Because if you remember that fourth noble truth, he said is 
the Noble Eightfold Path is the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So here he's going to lay it out for us. It is just this Noble Eightfold Path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And what is right view? It is, monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is right view. So he's pointing to the Four Noble Truths. To establish right view in his teachings, someone would need to learn, reflect, and practice the Four Noble Truths. So that's the connection here. The Eightfold Path is like a centralized teaching of the Buddhas, and pretty much every other teaching plugs into it in one way or another. So this is where the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths plugs in to the Eightfold Path. And by the way, the right view, part of what the Four Noble Truths is all about is understanding the what discontentedness is, understanding the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment, the mind craving for things to be permanent when they're actually impermanent. The elimination of discontentedness is eliminating from the mind this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent. So we train the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity to not expect permanence and let things go. And then the fourth noble truth is the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness is the full path. When you boil down everything from the four noble truths, and you will need to study that much more deeply than what I'm sharing right here, but when you boil all this down, what essentially the Buddha is doing is showing you how you are causing all your own discontentedness. And because you're causing it, you can eliminate it. And by accepting responsibility for all your feelings, all your emotions, all the things that are in the mind, and what's happening to you on a day-to-day basis, you are now practicing right view. But you've got to be able to do that in the moment. So when your mind becomes frustrated or annoyed or irritated or angry, it's not your brother, your sister, your partner, your children, your boss, your co-workers or some situation that's causing the mind to be discontent. It's your craving, desire, attachment that's causing itself. The mind is actually causing itself to be discontent. This is part of right view. And by you understanding that and rooting that out, and you know what the real problem is, is your own mind. Now you can take active steps to fix it. If you blamed your other people or friends or family in your life or situations that they are the ones who are causing you to be discontent, then you got to go around and fix everybody else because it's not you. It's 7.5 billion people in the world to train and teach them how to do things your way so that your mind can be content. But that's not how any of this works. You actually have to train your mind. You can't train 7.5 billion people to do things your way. So by letting go of expecting other people to be a certain way and do things a certain way, accepting that it's your own craving, desire, attachment, now you can practice right view and work on the real problem, which is your own mind and eradicating the pollution from the mind.
Right intention, this next part, and what monks is right intention. There's three components to right intention. The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This is called right intention. The intention of renunciation or relinquishment, the giving up, being willing to let go and give things up. You have to have that intention as part of this path. If you hold on to everything and keep everything really tight, then you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. And it's not that we have to let go of our material possessions or let go of our relationships. You can still have a life partner. You can still have children. You can still have a car, a house, and all these other things that you need in order to sustain your life. But you have to be willing to let go of the craving, desire, attachment that's holding on to things in the mind. So it's not that you have to let go of the car, for example, but you have to let go of wanting it to be permanent. Or it's not that you have to let go of your relationships like your children. You just have to let go of wanting them to be a certain way all the time and putting your expectations on them. You have to guide them and teach them and help them along in life, but ultimately understanding they have to make their own choices in this life. So this intention of renunciation is the intention of being willing to let things go or relinquishment. The intention of non-ill will, this is essentially loving kindness because ill will is the opposite of goodwill, which loving kindness or this active goodwill, this interest in seeing all beings be peaceful. Because if you enter into this path, this path is all about not causing harm to others and your own being as well, because by causing harm, then that harm is going to be returned to you. So right here in the second step of the Eightfold Path, not only have you, with right view, understood that it's your own craving, desire, attachment that's causing discontentedness, but you're setting the intention that I'm not interested in harming any other beings through practicing non-ill will or having goodwill, loving kindness. And then that third intention is the intention of harmlessness, not being interested in harming other beings, peacefully coexisting in harmony with others and knowing that your decisions impact other people and ensuring that as you progress on this path, you learn how to clean up your decisions so you're not causing harm to others. And by not causing harm to others, that won't be returned to you. So these first two steps of right view and right intention make up wisdom. And you would need both of these in order to progress to enlightenment. And you would need to develop and cultivate this more and more in the mind. Then right speech. And what, monks, is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. One of the things that the Buddha does in his teachings is he has this layered effect. Here with the Eightfold Path, he's kind of giving you a certain layer of right speech. He also talks a little bit about it in the Five Precepts, where he talks about lying and being a truth speaker, one to be relied on. But then he also talks about the five factors of well-spoken speech, which is a much deeper level 
of being able to practice right speech than what he's sharing here. And then he has other parts of right speech that he shares at different times. So there's this layering effect that he has. And here, right speech is a major step on the Eightfold Path, but there's other teachings that plug into it. So when you study this, don't think that right speech is this and only this. There's actually other components of right speech that plug into this. Refraining from lying, we understand that, right? Like false speech or deception or deceit, uh, misleading comments, uh, things like that. Because if we lie to people, then people are gonna lie to us and we're gonna find it very difficult for people to rely on us and be able to hold jobs and be respected and have a good reputation in the community. The same thing with slander. Slander is talking publicly in a negative way about a particular person. Even if it's true, that doesn't matter. If we talk negatively out in the open and even privately about others, this is almost like gossip, but that's a little bit different. Slander is kind of with the intention of uh, causing harm to somebody through disparaging them about their occupation or their expertise or something like this. Because if we slander people, then people are going to do the same thing to us. So, you know, it's best to purge this from your practice where you don't speak anything negative about anyone, either publicly or privately, because it doesn't lead to anything wholesome. If we end up slandering or gossiping about people, then people are going to be doing that about us too. And we wouldn't like that. And it's going to hurt us in our career and our relationships and the things that we're involved in. Refraining from harsh speech is like not speaking gently. The Buddha talks about speaking gently, not argumentatively, not aggressively. This comes down to word choice. This comes down to tone and tempo of how you actually speak. In volume one of this book series, I talk about the five factors of well-spoken speech and all of these steps in a lot more detail, and you can see what I talk about there. Refraining from frivolous speech is like idle chatter, just kind of pointless speech that doesn't have any real purpose or goal behind it. It's just yada, 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 yada. So if we did that, it would actually be harmful because if you've ever been around somebody that just is speaking frivolously, it takes a lot of effort to listen and it almost hurts the mind when you're trying to listen to somebody. And it requires a lot of work to have to sort through all that frivolous speech. And then when someone has something really important to say, if this person is kind of used to everybody knowing that this one person is always speaking without purpose and frivolous speech, then when they have something important to say, nobody really wants to listen to you. So if you speak with frivolous speech, then you're not one that people can rely on. You're not like a truth speaker. So by having a purpose behind your speech, having it be beneficial for others, then your speech really counts. It's really important and people will listen to you and you can actually accomplish more in your day-to-day -day life when you're not using idle chatter or frivolous speech. In what monks is right action? This is causing harm through our bodily action. The first one was our speech or our communication. You know, you can think about that as text messages and Facebook posts and all those other kind of things as well, leaving voice messages, causing harm through communication. This one is the Buddha helping you to see how to not cause harm through your bodily actions. 
But once again, there's other things that the Buddha teaches that plug into this as part of his other teachings. This is just kind of one layer that he's sharing, refraining from the taking of life. This would be killing of another living being. Refraining from taking what is not given. This is like stealing. Refraining from sexual misconduct. And the Buddha goes into talking about these in a lot more detail in other parts of his teachings. But this is essentially helping you to purify your bodily actions so you're not causing any harm through your bodily actions. The next one, in what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. The Buddha talks about five wrong livelihoods. A livelihood is how you choose to sustain your life. So how are you conducting life? Are you a cashier? Are you a doctor? Are you a person who cleans houses? Are you a person who collects garbage? Are you a teacher? Are you a politician? All of those that I just mentioned are right livelihood, and there's plenty of right livelihoods in the world. But he only gives us five wrong livelihoods that we know that will actually cause harm in the world. If we sell weapons, if we sell living beings, if we sell meat, if we sell intoxicants or substances that cause heedlessness, or if we sell poison, all five of those are meant to cause harm and will cause harm. And there's a lot more details of this, like I mentioned, in volume one as well. That rounds out the moral conduct, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This purifies your conduct, and there's a lot more depth behind all of those. Now we move into the mental discipline. In what monks is right effort? Here there's four right efforts, or we call them strivings. You're striving uh, with these efforts. Essentially what this boils down to is taking the effort to eliminate unwholesome qualities from the mind and arising wholesome qualities in the mind. But the Buddha breaks it down into four different types of right effort. Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. So the first one is anything that's unwholesome, that is not yet in the mind, take the effort to prevent that from ever entering the mind. So if you have no interest in killing a human being, that's not something that's even in your mind right now, then the Buddha is saying prevent that from ever coming into the mind. Take the effort to keep that unwholesomeness outside of the mind. That's just one simple example. So anything that's unwholesome that's not yet in the mind, prevent it from ever arising in the mind. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. So any unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, the Buddha is saying, take the effort to eliminate those from the mind and get them out of there. And there's lots of teachings that he shares to help you understand how to do that. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. So any wholesome mental states that are not yet in the mind, 
The Buddha is saying, take the effort to arise those and bring them into the mind. So this would be if you maybe aren't very compassionate or you're not very generous, then work on arising those in the mind because they're not yet in the mind and you're going to need those wholesome mental states and others in order to progress towards enlightenment and take the effort to arise those wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So this is any wholesome mental states that currently exist in the mind, support them, encourage them, help them to grow, don't allow them to fade. So if you have loving kindness or you're a generous person or you have kindness and politeness that's in the mind, the Buddha is saying take the effort to support that, encourage that, help it to grow and don't let it fade. So these are the four right efforts, which you can learn more about in volume one. In what monks is right mindfulness? Mindfulness is essentially awareness of mind, having the awareness of mind, because if you're going to purify the mind, you need to have awareness of it. Oftentimes in modern dialogue and modern conversations, we use this word mindfulness in different ways. Most of what I see people using it for is they use it for careful. So if you pick up a glass of water and you're carrying it across the room, someone might say, oh, do that mindfully. What they're really saying is do that carefully. If you understand what the Buddha means by mindfulness, then you can actually practice mindfulness and improve your life practice, improve the mind, and get to this enlightened mental state. What he means by mindfulness is awareness of mind, having the awareness of those unwholesome mental states, having the awareness of those wholesome mental states, so you can take action through right effort to eliminate the unwholesome and arise wholesome. But here in Right Mindfulness, he discusses what we call the four foundations of mindfulness. It's bodily sensations, feelings in the mind, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. And I discussed this at length in other parts of our programs, and we can talk about it here too if you like. But let me just read this. Here, monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body. That's the bodily sensations. Dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful having put aside craving and worry for the world, right? So in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to be aware of bodily sensations that prior to getting angry or prior to getting excited or elated, any of this discontentedness that arises, there's going to be certain bodily sensations that happen first. And you need to build awareness of mind because that's where you need to cut it off and let it go so that it doesn't come into the mind and pollute the mind through creating painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant in the mind. Because once the feelings are in the mind, it's a lot harder to let them go. So if you can catch it at bodily sensations and cut it off there, then you've just saved yourself a whole lot of heartache. So that's why he has that one as first. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, 
having put aside craving and worry for the world. So that's the feelings that are in the mind. Craving, as you know, is this mental longing with a strong eagerness, wanting the world to be a certain way, or worry about the world. In order to get to enlightenment, you can't be worried about the world. You can have concern for the world, but if you worry about it, that means the mind's going to be discontent. He resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. So here, mind as mind is understanding the condition of the mind. Now that you had a certain experience, you experience the bodily sensations, they become feelings in the mind. Now those feelings affect the condition of the mind for two hours, for two days, for longer periods of time. This is how the progression of discontentedness starts to impact you more and more. Then, if you don't catch it there and cut it off, it moves to a mental object. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. So a mental object is like ill will. That's a mental object. Or complacency. That's a mental object. But in order to get to a mental object, there would have been multiple situations in somebody's life where they became irritated, they became annoyed, they became frustrated, they became angered. These bodily sensations came up through the body. It created feelings in the mind of anger, hatred. Now those feelings move into affecting the condition of the mind for a few hours, a few weeks, a few months. Now there's this deep-rooted mental object of ill will that's much harder to get rid of. But in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to get rid of any mental objects that are unwholesome. So you would need to have develop mindfulness and awareness of all three of these and be able to know how to work with them skillfully to eradicate this discontentedness from the mind. In order to eradicate discontentedness, which this whole path is about, you would have to have mindfulness or right mindfulness in all four of these of all four foundations of mindfulness. And then the last one, in what monks is right concentration? Here the Buddha is going to start talking about the jhanas. But what right concentration is, is it's essentially a byproduct of practicing all the rest of the steps. But in order to practice right concentration, you also need to develop a meditation practice and practice singleness of mind on a day-to-day basis. So there's this dedicated, consistent, ongoing meditation practice where you're developing right concentration. Then in daily life, you just focus on one thing at a time or singleness of mind is what the Buddha referred to it as. And then with all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path and practicing meditation and singleness of mind, the mind starts experiencing these jhanas. The jhanas are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through prior to the four stages of enlightenment. So there's four stages of enlightenment that the mind goes through, but then there's these four preliminary phases called the jhanas. And that's what the Buddha is going to talk about here, because if you put together all the rest of the Eightfold Path, including meditation and practicing singleness of mind to cultivate right concentration, 
you will experience the jhanas. And this is an indication to you that your life practice is well developed and you're starting to observe the condition of the mind improving because you're going to start experiencing these things that the Buddha is talking about here. This is how you can know that the mind's moving through the jhanas because you're going to start experiencing these things. So here's what he says. Here, a monk, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. So what this is, is that central desire, that fetter of central desire, where the mind's chasing pleasant feelings through the six senses. The Buddha says someone who's in the first jhana is going to kind of distance themselves from that. They haven't eliminated sensual desires yet. That doesn't happen until the later stages of enlightenment. But here, this practitioner will have distanced themselves from chasing after pleasant feelings for sensual desires through the six sense bases. They will have distanced themselves from unwholesome mental states. So things like killing or stealing or sexual misconduct, lying, substances that cause heedlessness, and other unwholesome mental states, the practitioner in the jhanas will have started to eliminate those things, including purifying right intention, right speech, and all those other things. The first jhana is with thinking and pondering. This is where the mind starts to know these teachings quite well, but you can't quite execute them with ease yet. Everything that's happening in your life, there are situations that happened maybe in the past, but now when this new situation is happening, which is very similar to what happened in the past, the mind goes into this thinking and pondering, where it's thinking, hmm, my mind feels like it wants to talk harsh, because that's what I'm used to, but I know that's not helpful. I should speak gentle here. And the mind starts thinking and pondering. It almost becomes obsessive about thinking about the teachings and contrasting the teachings to something that you're about to do. This is called thinking and pondering. Based in seclusion, this is where the mind feels like it wants to be isolated and secluded. It kind of wants to go away from everybody. By the time it gets to this point, you've made a good amount of progress and you're starting to see all the suffering and discontentedness in the world. And you might feel like you just want to unplug from the world and go like live in the forest by yourself and be completely away from all of humanity. The mind gets to that point and that's a normal thing. So that's why he says the mind is going to be experiencing this interest to be isolated and secluded. But then there's the mind becomes filled with excitement and joy. It's almost like a bliss that the mind can experience during the first jhana. Moving on, moving to the second jhana, what happens is, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, so now that thinking and pondering, that almost obsessive nature of the mind, looking at the teachings, contrasting to what it's about to do, that starts to subside. It's not eliminated, but it starts to subside in the second jhana. By gaining inner tranquility, so that excitement and joy that springs up in the first jhana, now it starts to calm down. You start getting this calmness, this inner tranquility of mind. And oneness of mind or unification of mind. 
he enters and resides in the second jhana. If you ever have studied anything about the mind, people talk about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. Well, the subconscious mind influences the conscious mind. Sometimes if you've ever been in a situation where you said something and then like one second after you said it, it's like, that was silly. Why did I say that? That was so rude or that wasn't proper. That wasn't polite. That's because the subconscious mind is influencing the conscious mind and there's some pollution in the subconscious mind that's influencing the conscious mind. Well, by the time you get to the second jhana and you develop this mindfulness and this right effort and all these other aspects of the Eightfold Path, there's now this oneness or this unification of the mind where there's no longer a subconscious mind and a conscious mind. It's just one mind. And you have complete awareness of all of it by the time you get through these jhanas. So it, the mind becomes one, and it's just one mind. There's no subconscious thoughts in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering. So by the time you get to the end of the second jhana and actually reside in the second jhana, the thinking and pondering is completely eliminated based in concentration. So you have this deep concentration that starts to come. And then there's still some excitement and joy. But there is this inner tranquility that's starting to come. And with the fading away of excitement, so now we're moving into the third jhana. In with the fading away of excitement, there's no longer these impermanent conditions that create this, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, wow, look at this. I'm so excited the mind kind of diminishes that discontentedness and comes more to the middle where it's more stable and more steady. So in with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, what imperturbable means is unable to be upset or excited. The mind is calm and serene by the time it gets to the third jhana, that you can't get upset and you're not going to be able to get really excited. So these discontented feelings have been diminished by this point. They're not completely eliminated. That doesn't happen until the mind becomes enlightened, but they've been diminished. Mindful and clearly aware. So the mind has developed this deep awareness. He experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, Peaceful is he who resides with equanimity, so evenness of temper starts coming in, and mindfulness, this awareness of mind. He enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, so the mind is no longer seeking pleasure, it's no longer experiencing these painful feelings to the high degree that you did when you were off the path, they've been diminished. And with the fading away of the former gladness and sadness. So again, diminishing of discontentedness is what he's describing. He enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain. So what you're experiencing in the fourth jhana is better than the pleasure that you experienced in the unenlightened state where you base all your pleasant feelings on these impermanent conditions and you experience these significant painful feelings, now being in the fourth jhana, it's beyond that kind of pleasure and pain that you experienced before. And this is why it's very noticeable as the mind moves through these jhanas. You can observe this happening. 
and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. So we've already talked about what those are. This is called right concentration. And that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So that's a real short kind of overview of what the Eightfold Path is. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter, if any. I think we'll go to Basam. Thanks, Milan. Uh, um, as for a uh, right speech, uh, here are two questions. The first one is, uh, do you consider a debate or an argument is a kind of frivolous speech? And if so, what would be a good way or a wise way to turn an argument to a wholesome discussion? You could think of an argument or debate as frivolous speech. You know, frivolous speech or idle chatter is like there's this craving to talk. There's this mental longing, strong eagerness to talk. Even if it's not beneficial, the mind just wants to talk. And it talks anyway, regardless of whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. So you could think of an argument that way. Because in the back of the mind, for people who are arguing, they kind of know that it's not going to lead to anything good or wholesome. But there's such a craving that they want to be proven right or they want someone else to be proven wrong that they just keep arguing and arguing and arguing. So you could consider a debate or argument frivolous speech if you like, because surely debating and arguing is not right speech for sure. In terms of an argument, you can't always turn that into something wholesome. And when someone's excited to argue, Oftentimes, it's best to just completely disengage, let the mind calm down. It's very rare that you can take someone who's in such a, a state of argument and actually get them to calm down and actually have a wholesome conversation in one situation. So the best way to turn an argument into not an argument is just disengage, change the subject, walk away, ignore it, because once somebody's escalated to that level, it's very difficult to for them to move their mind in an opposite direction. And also on top of that, keep in mind that our practice isn't to try to persuade others to do something or not to do something. Someone else who's arguing, that's their practice and they're choosing to do that. So what we should be doing is focusing on our own decisions not trying to change other people and trying to change them from arguing to not arguing because we don't have that power. Only that person has that ability to do that. So all you can do is improve your decisions. So if somebody's arguing, your decision, in my view, should be along the lines of disengaging, changing the subject of ignoring and moving on so that this person can let it go. Yeah, now it's clear. Thanks, teacher. Yep. I believe Nick has a question. Hello, teacher. I wanted to check um, understanding of right effort, that paragraph. Hopefully this will be beneficial to others as well. Um, the first part, I know it's four parts. The first part, the prevention of the arising of unarisen, unarisen evil wholesome states. Would this be um, basically guarding the sixth sense basis? For example, if you're not thinking of evil things, like, why would you go watch horror films or, 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 or um, you know, that's like, you know, it'll come in through the eyes. Or why would you go to um, unwholesome places, you know, and 
hear these things, see these things. Yeah, you can think of it that way, Nick. That's a great way to think about it is, but more specifically, it's anything that's currently not in the mind. So say like, I know you have a, a wonderful relationship with your girlfriend and in your mind, you're probably not thinking about having sexual misconduct and maybe you've never thought about going out and having sexual misconduct. So the Buddha is saying, don't allow that unwholesome mental state to ever even enter the mind, just prevent it from ever coming into the mind. Right, so preventing it would be, um, if, you're, if you're talking about relationships, like um, if you're not having those unwholesome thoughts of sexual misconduct, like why on your social media would you be following, you know, models, pages, and you know, that would kind of, that would get into your mind that way. That's basically how I meant with with the example that I gave, um, just guarding the sick sense bases. Yeah, that, you can that, think of it that way. Right effort is a little bit more higher level than the guarding of the six sense bases. That's that layering effect. So the the guarding of the six sense bases is a lot more detailed than right effort. But these two things are connected for sure. That's why you're seeing that connection there. Because in order to guard okay. your six doorways of discontentedness, you would have to apply right effort. But right. right effort is a little bit more higher level than talking about guarding the six doorways. That's a more detailed level teaching. All right, I understand, teacher. Mm -hmm. um, for the second one, I think of it um, when you actually have uh, an evil on un a wholesome state that has arisen. I like to use the, um, uh, the Buddha's uh, guidance, like uh, smashing out the sandcastle. That, that's what I think of. Um, when kids are done with building a sandcastle, they just smash it out, obliterate it. That's what I try to do if I get like an evil thought that arises. I just picture that sandcastle simile. That's a good way to do That's it. So I use that one. Yeah, and on the theme of children, the way that I teach right effort to my son is kick out all the bad stuff and bring in all the good stuff. That's essentially what right effort is, is, is kick out all the unwholesomeness and bring in all the wholesomeness. If we want to really make it really simple. Okay. And I was thinking for the, the next two, um, for keeping wholesome states that, that have arisen, it, would that just be, you know, studying, studying with you, being consistent, coming to these classes, doing wholesome things, um, just continuing them, I, I imagine. Um, but for uh, unarisen, wholesome states, what would be the best way to cultivate that? Um, would that just be like loving kindness meditation, things like that? So this is where like as you're learning these teachings and you realize certain wholesome mental states that are needed in order to attain enlightenment and you realize that those aren't things that you even had on your radar. You didn't even know those things were important to cultivate. Well, once you're aware of them through these teachings and you've got that wisdom, now you bring them into the mind. So we can think about not just loving kindness, but even things like compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity. Some of these things you might not have ever even thought of about how those things are important for the mind. So let's just say sympathetic joy. Let's say you had never thought about practicing, you know, having joy with other success and say that the mind was a bit jealous. Well, when you realize that sympathetic joy is a wholesome mental state and you haven't cultivated that ever in the mind, 
now the Buddha is saying, you know, take effort to cultivate that and bring that into the mind. So it's all wholesome mental states. And with loving kindness, yes, if you didn't have loving kindness in the mind, practicing loving kindness meditation would be a way to bring that into the mind. And then taking the effort to practice it in daily life as well with people around you. So that's how you would take something that doesn't currently exist in the mind and then bring it into the mind and arise it in the mind. And you realize and understand what is unwholesome and what is wholesome through the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings. So essentially, it's the Brahma Viharas plus generosity. There's others as well because there's things from the five precepts. There's things from right intention, right speech, right action. So here he's not laying out for you of all the things that are wholesome and unwholesome. That's what he's doing in all of his other teachings. But here, from a certain level of detail of the Eightfold Path, what he's saying is when you learn about these unwholesome qualities, you're going to have to eliminate those. And when you learn about these wholesome qualities, you're going to have to cultivate those. And then throughout the rest of his teachings, he's going to teach you what is unwholesome and what is wholesome. So you've got, you know, all of the Eightfold Path, which is laying out things that are wholesome. You've got the Brahma Viharas. You've got the five precepts. You've got the seven factors of enlightenment. Things that are unwholesome. You've got things like the ten fetters that you have to eliminate. So as you progress in learning each aspect of his teachings, there's going to be certain unwholesome things and certain wholesome things. And as you learn those, you'll have to take the effort to eliminate unwholesome and arise the wholesome. Thank you, teacher. I see how it ties together. Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit. This is like just kind of like a, a certain level of detail helping you. Like basically, enlightenment is not going to happen by itself. You have to take the effort to cultivate these wholesome mental states and eliminate the unwholesome. That's the effort involved. Other questions on the Eightfold Path? Teacher David, just a follow up from Nick's question about uh, unarisen wholesome mental states. What would be the best way to go about identifying those? Um, is there is there any um, wholesome unarisen wholesome mental states um, which would get neglected just because you don't know you know what what is not there yet? So what's the best practical practice to um, should we you know write down some of these things and just kind of just visually see, hey, these are the ones that think that I need to have and strive towards creating more wholesome state. Um, and that is what essentially applies towards the unarisen, uh, recognizing the unarisen, or is it something that, you know, will sort of be realized as we go more deeper into understanding what the mind is um, conditioned with. I'm just confused on how to identify the unarisen. Sure. So what this is, is this is that process that I talk about of learning, reflecting, and practicing. So what you guys are doing now by learning, investigating the teachings, that's where you learn. And that's why you need guidance and you need a teacher to share the teachings with you. And as you learn, 
about the wholesome mental states that the Buddha teaches as part of all of his teachings, well, as you're learning and you hear about this sympathetic joy, for example, that antidotes jealousy, if you know that you don't practice that and when you see somebody have something good happen to them, you feel a little bit jealous and you know that about yourself. This is why it's an independent journey, but you need guidance. So when you know that you've got a little bit of jealousy or you don't feel joy when you see something wholesome happen for someone else, then you know, ah, I don't have sympathetic joy and that's something I need to work on. So now for the next several weeks and months, whenever you're in situations where you see somebody having something good or wholesome happen for them, you apply effort to arise that wholesome mental state of sympathetic joy. And as you continue to learn what the teachings are and what is wholesome, and then you reflect on those and say, okay, sympathetic joy, why would that benefit me? Oh, it eradicates jealousy. I see that's important. Yeah, that's a very good wholesome mental state. Now you start moving it into practice where in daily life, when you're in those situations, you start arising that sympathetic joy in the mind. And as you do, each time it gets easier and easier. And then eventually it's just permeating in your mind all the time. You don't have to really take the effort. When you're moving into the enlightened mental state, learning the the Eightfold Path and actually bringing it into the mind and practicing it, it, it's a lot of work. It, It can be a real struggle sometimes. But as you get closer and closer to learning this and reflecting on it and practicing it, as the mind moves closer and closer to enlightenment, this becomes effortless. Whereas if you've arisen sympathetic joy many, many times in the mind, eventually it's permeating in the mind so much you don't even have to think about it as soon as you're around somebody or you see something or you know of somebody having something good you just immediately feel joy it's like oh wow that's wonderful so pleased to hear that so that's how you learn what the wholesome mental states are is through investigating the teachings learning them as you guys are doing in this book series and this program and all the work that you're doing to learn the Buddhist teachings. He's going to share with you piece by piece what are the wholesome mental states and what are the unwholesome ones as well. So from what I'm understanding, chipping away at at unwholesome states which have risen will ultimately um, unfold and produce uh, with effort uh, wholesome unarisen mental state. Can you say that again? So what I'm saying is by recognizing what is already arisen or already there as an unwholesome mental state, which which you recognize as something that you need to um, have a um, investigation and right effort and energy for, by chipping away is what it is meant by producing unarisen wholesome mental state. Yeah, I mean, some there's going to be some unwholesome mental states that aren't in the mind that you just want to prevent from ever entering the mind. Then there's going to be certain unwholesome things that are in the mind that you have to eliminate. And then there's going to be certain wholesome mental states that aren't in the mind right now, and you need to bring those into the mind. And then there's going to be certain wholesome mental states that are currently in your mind now that you need to support and encourage and expand to greater growth. So these are just the four types of right effort that you'll need to make. And the way that you simplify this 
is kick out the unwholesome stuff and bring in the good stuff. And you find out what that unwholesome stuff and that wholesome stuff is, the more you learn the Buddhist teachings. So for example, the next one, right mindfulness, that's a wholesome mental quality of having awareness of mind. And if you don't have mindfulness now, it's an unarisen, wholesome mental state. And you're going to need to learn the four foundations of mindfulness and arise this quality in the mind. Right concentration, that's a wholesome mental state. If you don't have concentration and focus, you lack clarity of mind, your mind tends to be muddled sometimes. You're going to have to cultivate that and arise that in the mind. So that's why right effort is actually first as part of this mental discipline of the Eightfold Path is because you have to have right effort in order to develop right mindfulness and right concentration. But also you kind of have to have right mindfulness in order to have right effort because you have to have awareness of mind of what is unwholesome and wholesome. And that's the more you learn, you'll see what is unwholesome, what is unwholesome. And that's where your independent practice, you look inwardly, be very honest and objective with yourself about what is in the mind that you've got to eliminate and what do you need to bring into the mind. And then that's your life practice of constantly working on getting rid of this unwholesomeness and arising the wholesome. Okay, yeah, I think um, I'm following what you're saying. Thank you for clarifying. Mm-hmm. Um, Amina has a question. How should we view right effort in relation to the middle way? For example, yesterday when the mind and body was tired, it was not possible to engage with my child in an energized way when she asked a question, but I made sure to maintain the wholesome state of patience using right effort. Is that also following the middle way by not succumbing to impatience when fatigued, or perhaps right effort and the middle way are not related teachings. Yeah, so in that situation, you took the effort to maintain your patience. You took the effort to talk and have right speech and have right action and not cause harm because you can't permanently be energetic. It's not possible at this stage, right? You can't permanently be that way. You're going to experience times of fatigue, but in that fatigue, you can't allow the mind to backslide and be complacent and then start talking with wrong speech or start having wrong actions that cause harm. But in that situation where you were fatigued and you were aware of it because of mindfulness, now you take the effort to ensure that you're doing only wholesome things. You know, there's going to be times where you might need to tell your daughter, you know what, mom's tired. I need some time to myself. And that's okay because you can't permanently be there for your daughter. You know, that's not possible. So taking the right effort to ensure that you're practicing these good, wholesome teachings at all times. That's what an enlightened being is going to need to do. Eventually, like I mentioned, it becomes effortless. You do it with ease and smoothness. But in order to get there, there's a lot of effort involved to be able to do that. It doesn't appear there are any more questions for this chapter. Okay, so if you would like more details on the Eightfold Path, which is utterly important, be sure to look at Volume 1. If you haven't looked at Volume 1, Chapter 5 yet, you'll see that in there. And feel free to ask questions in the Facebook group, ask more questions in class, send a private message, or schedule personal guidance, because 
you have to know the Eightfold Path backwards, forwards, left, right, up, down. It's like you have to know it like the back of your hand. And continuing to soak the mind in those teachings is really important. So let's go to chapter 12. Who's going to read this one? That would be awesome. Yes, the world would not lack for arahants. In whatever teachings and discipline, the noble eightfold path is not found. No ascetics is found of the first, the second, the third, or the fourth stage uh, grade. But such ascetics can be found of the first, second, third, and fourth grade in the teachings and discipline where the noble eightfold path is found. Now, Subhada, in these teachings and discipline, the noble eightfold path is found, and in it are to be found ascetics of the first, second, third, and fourth grade. These other schools are lacking of true ascetics, but if in this one the monks were to live the life to perfection, the world would not be would not lack for our hands. Okay, very good. So here the Buddha is essentially talking about the importance of the Eightfold Path, which he talks about in a lot of different teachings. He's saying if a particular path does not include the Eightfold Path then there is no one that's going to be able to attain the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment. Because remember, during his lifetime, there were multiple people that were teaching, and there were different aesthetics roaming from teacher to teacher, and everybody was claiming it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. Well, we know it was the Buddhist teachings, because that's why his teachings are still around, and those other teachings aren't around. So he's saying, you know, the Eightfold Path is utterly important, and that if people practice the Eightfold Path to perfection, then the world would not lack for arahants. In other words, there would be a proliferation of enlightened beings throughout the world if lots and lots of people practice the Eightfold Path. So what questions do you guys have on this one, if any? Doesn't look like there are any questions right now. Okay, yeah, that's a pretty short, straightforward one. Let's see this one, chapter 13. I believe that's me. The difference between the Tathagata and a monk liberated by wisdom. Monks, the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, liberated by non-clinging through a fading away of strong feelings towards form, through its fading away and elimination, is called the perfectly enlightened one. A monk liberated by wisdom, liberated by non-clinging through a fading away of strong feelings towards form, through its fading away and elimination is called one liberated by wisdom. The Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, liberated by non-clinging through a fading away of strong feelings towards feeling, perception, volitional formation, which is choices, decisions, consciousness, through its fading away and elimination is called a perfectly enlightened one. A monk liberated by wisdom, liberated by non-clinging, through a fading away of strong feelings towards feeling, perception, volitional formations, which is choices, decisions, and consciousness. Through its fading away and elimination it is called one liberated by wisdom. Therein, monks, what is the distinction? What is the disparity? What is the difference between the Tathagata, the Arahant, 
the perfectly enlightened one, and a monk liberated by wisdom. The Tathagata monks, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, is the originator of the path unarisen by before, the producer of the path unproduced before, the declarer of the path undeclared before. He is the knower of the path, the discoverer of the path, the one skilled in the path, and his disciples now reside following that path and become possessed of it afterwards. This, monks, is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the Teth, the God of the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, and a monk liberated by wisdom. Okay, so here the Buddha is drawing a distinction between him being the perfectly enlightened one and everyone else who's enlightened because everyone is considered an arahant who's enlightened. An arahant is someone who's eliminated all the 10 fetters. All those 10 pollutions of mind have been eliminated. But there's a difference between a tathagata or a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, versus a person who's attained enlightenment by wisdom. The difference is that a Tathagata, a perfectly enlightened one, has discovered the path. They're declaring the path. They did this on their own. And that's what he did. He became enlightened through his own independent journey to enlightenment. And while he eliminated the 10 fetters to be considered an Arahant, his students are also Arahants or enlightened, but they're not perfectly enlightened because they didn't attain that mental state on their own without the help of a teacher. So this is the real distinction and difference here. And this can really help you if you've had any exposure to any other traditions of teachings where once you attain enlightenment, they say that you're a Buddha or they say you've attained Buddhahood. The Buddha is making it very clear here that there's a, a very big difference between him being a perfectly enlightened one and someone else who just attains enlightenment as part of their growth on the path. Both are wonderful to have in the world, but a Tadagata or a perfectly enlightened one, a Buddha, is someone who's attained enlightenment on their own by themselves through their own pursuit without the help of any teachers. They then, based on those independently discovered teachings, share those teachings with countless people during their lifetime to ensure and help countless people to attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And then when they die, they leave the teachings in a condition that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death, and they no longer are reborn ever again. This is what a Tathagata is. A Tathagata means one who's discovered the truth or the knower of the truth. And that's what the Buddha is essentially talking about down here, where he says the Tathagata monks, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one, is the originator of the path, unarisen before, the producer of the path, unproduced before, the declarer of the path, undeclared before. He is the knower of the path, discoverer of the path, one skilled in the path, deep, 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 deep wisdom, because he discovered this path on his own without the help of anyone else. And his disciples now reside following the path because they need a teacher. They couldn't discover it on their own. And they become somewhat possessed of this path because 
they see the benefit that it's accomplishing for their mind. So ensure that if you are going to practice the teachings based on the words of the Buddha, that you understand that you can become an enlightened being, an arahant, and you will eliminate discontentedness, no longer be reborn in the cycle of rebirth, but you will be one who is liberated by wisdom. By gaining wisdom from the guidance of a teacher, your mind will attain enlightenment and you'll utterly be pleased with that mental state. That's nothing to be sad about, that you are an enlightened being. But you won't be a perfectly enlightened one. You won't be a Buddha because you didn't discover the path. You didn't declare it. You don't have the deep, 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 profound wisdom that a Buddha will have. So that's the difference. Uh, And that's why a Tathagata or a Buddha, a perfectly enlightened one, is so rare in the world. The last one that existed was over 2,500 years ago that the world currently is aware of. So here he's making that distinction so people know the difference between him being enlightened and themselves becoming enlightened. But you're going to see in Buddhist communities, people will say that, oh, if you're enlightened, you're a Buddha, or you can attain Buddhahood. This isn't what the Buddha actually taught. He taught that there's a big difference between a Buddha and an enlightened being. Any questions on this one? Teacher David, before the Buddha uh, was the Buddha, became enlightened um, and became the Tathagata, he was a monk, correct? He was an aesthetic or a monk, yes. And he would have applied and investigated teachings which had existed at that time and incorporated some of the teaching which was already present and skillfully connect you know teachings in order to and in order to arrive at a deeper wisdom and in order to create the path um, he would have connected what a few things which was had already existed at that time is that correct right so during his lifetime he studied with two teachers this is in the Pali canon and in the first two years of his six-year journey he studied with the one teacher and in a really short period of time he was able to fully understand that teacher's teachings and that teacher recognized him as a master teacher in that discipline And the Buddha commented that even though he had become a master teacher in this short period of time, he still had discontentedness and those teachings didn't lead to enlightenment. So then he went and studied with a second teacher. And within a short period of time, he became a master teacher in that discipline as well. And he commented that those teachings didn't lead to his enlightenment and his elimination of his discontentedness. So after two years, realizing that his mind still had discontentedness, he went out on his own and worked on his mind himself. But at that time, something like the natural law of gamma was talked about. It wouldn't have been as deeply understood as what the Buddha ultimately brought to the surface. But something like the natural law of gamma was talked about because it was part of Hinduism, which was uh, widely practiced in that part of the world but they didn't have the level of depth that the Buddha was ultimately going to bring to it. Likewise, meditation was being taught during his lifetime, and it was something that people were doing, but he brought the very specific of exactly what needed to be done. 
he explained exactly what this natural law of gamma is and it was his teachings that clarified exactly what this path is so if there was you know one teacher that had 20 percent of the path another teacher that had 10 percent of it another teacher had 30 percent of it he didn't go out to all those teachers and collect it and then make his own teachings he went to two teachers realized that his mind was still discontent and then he went off on his own and brought clarity to something that people didn't have clarity on even though there's people meditating they weren't meditating in the way that he taught even though there was discussion of the natural law of gamma there wasn't the clarity of the natural law of gamma the way that he brought and we could go right on down the line of all of his teachings that way so he brought to the surface a level of clarity that didn't exist at any other time during the world other than when he taught okay i uh, just was trying to think about um the other monks uh at that time and um i, I don't really need to um gather any information specific information it's just that this chapter is before us but um basically monks other monks at that time who claimed to be enlightened uh, that could be factual correct that they were in fact um, enlightened beings? I would say that it, it would not be the people who were of other disciplines, I would say, because if they were enlightened, that means that they were a Buddha, because during that lifetime, people in that area didn't necessarily know how to attain enlightenment. And if they were enlightened and their teachings lead to enlightenment, then we would have those teachings with us today. But because the Buddha discovered the teachings on his own. He developed this deep wisdom, this clarity and focus of the teachings that didn't exist among other people. It was his teachings that rose above everybody else's and is why we still have them 2,500 years later. So we won't ever really know the true answer to the question you're asking, but my view, my opinion is that there weren't other people around him that were enlightened or else we would still have those teachings because we would know that, okay, these teachings are helpful and they will attain enlightenment as well. Yeah, uh, I sensed a little bit of that as well. Another thought is the Maitreya Buddha, who is said to exist right now, uh, would, would this being have greater wisdom than Gautama Buddha or would it be the same exact wisdom? Uh, would it be any greater because um, we're in modern times and perhaps there's more wisdom, deeper wisdom that um, um, has been investigated and needs to be shared to the world? In my view, Gautama Buddha is always going to be the master teacher, the, the Buddha, the deepest, most wise man to me that's ever walked the face of the earth. Any new Buddha that would arise would share the teachings that the Buddha shared and have this deep admiration for the Buddha, but would be able to cast these teachings into a way that a wide audience today could understand. But at the heart of the teachings, they are the Buddhist teachings, the Gautama Buddhist teachings. So I wouldn't say that Maitreya Buddha would have more wisdom than the Buddha. They would have some similar wisdom, but Maitreya would benefit from Gautama Buddha's teachings and respect him highly for the work that he did 
2,500 years ago. And I also will add to that is two Buddhas who are perfectly enlightened aren't going to necessarily compare themselves to each other to determine who's more or less enlightened because that whole comparison is eradicated from an enlightened mind, particularly two Buddhas. But to me, Maitreya Buddha will highly respect Master Teacher Gautama Buddha and admire him and respect him for the phenomenal work that he did during his lifetime because to be able to see the level of clarity that the Buddha saw 2,500 years ago is an amazing feat. One of the things that I hold up to represent that is something like same-gender relationships. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha knew that two people coming together of the same gender isn't causing any harm and being in love and having a relationship with each other, there's no harm there. And that's why the Buddha never taught that there's any problem with that. That was 2,500 years ago. We have many beings that exist today that haven't even come to that realization yet. So for this Buddha, this being 2,500 years ago, to have that level of depth and clarity, not just on that topic, but countless other topics, he really had an amazing mind to be able to see so clearly this natural law of gamma. And this is just one instance of same gender relationships where he just had utter clarity. Uh, you know, even 50 years ago, if or even uh, 10 or 20 years ago, if somebody would have stood up and advocated for same gender relationships, you know, there'd be gazillions of people that would bash that person and try to knock them down. And here we've got this Buddha 2,500 years ago that stood up and he knew that there's no harm in same gender relationships. And I think that just takes an amazing amount of wisdom and insight to have that level of clarity 2,500 years ago. Yes, thank you so much for bringing the point about not the mind not needing to measure and compare. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. We'll uh, go to Nick. Teacher David, do you think the ones that say, um, if, if I get enlightened, I, I can become a Buddha, Buddhahood, Buddha nature, do you think that um, possibly they're, 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 they're not trying to compare themselves to, to Gautama Buddha? They just don't understand or they never heard the word arahant or do you think it's more um the communities that are actually like you know ordained and teaching this um do you think that's actually what they believe more in a comparison manner i mean i, I just ran into this last night in a, mm -hmm. in a facebook group someone said it and the funny thing is um tomorrow's chapter and in, in, or the chapter for tomorrow's class it, it's it's in the chapter you know uh, you discussed this in volume the volume one book mm -hmm. um so uh that's also probably maybe the second or third time i've read that chapter so i've seen it before yeah so i was just trying to get clarification if you think that it's just uh a little ignorance you know people don't know the word arahant that's what they mean mm -hmm. or actually are they really think hey yeah we're all buddhas up there so there's lots of different reasons why these things come about, but we can summarize it in the three unwholesome roots or the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It's ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And that's why going back to the words of the Buddha like this is so important. The traditions that 
talk about you becoming a Buddha or Buddhahood or Buddha nature, they don't use the Pali Canon typically as their source. So they're not looking at these teachings in this way. So they lack the wisdom to understand what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. It's just oral teachings that's passed down from one person to the next to the next. So for someone to consider themselves a Buddha today or Buddhahood or Buddha nature, it's that they don't understand. They have the, that unknowing of true reality. They don't understand what a Buddha really is. And um, that's just part of the impermanence of the teachings that have been passed down for over 2,500 years. And that's why it's so important to go back to the words of the Buddha like you guys are doing in this class. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Any other questions? Miranda next for the next chapter. Okay. This spiritual life is not lived for the sake of deceiving people. Monks, this spiritual life is not lived for the sake of deceiving people and persuading them, nor for the benefit of gain, honor, and praise, nor for the benefit of winning in debates, nor with thought, let people know me thus. But rather, this spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings, and elimination. Perfect. So a short little piece here, helping people to understand that this spiritual life of learning these teachings and gaining this wisdom, it's not about gaining anything. It's not about seeking admiration or praise. It's about elimination of discontentedness. That's what he's saying here for the for restraint, abandoning, freedom from strong feelings and elimination, elimination of discontentedness. So if you're in a situation where people want to debate you or people have this ego of, you know, let the people know me thus, let me show them everything that I know about the Buddhist teachings. This isn't something that you would like to engage in because your goal in this spiritual life is to eliminate discontentedness, not to show off for other people, not to win in debates, not for any admiration. So that's what the Buddha is sharing here. It's also not to persuade people or deceive people on the surface, make it look like you're so holy and doing so many wholesome things, but in the background doing unwholesome things. And there shouldn't be any interest in any gain. This is why people who are enlightened aren't going to be charging a fee for their classes and attempting to become very wealthy through helping people to awaken or become enlightened. So if you ever choose to actually share these teachings, what the Buddha is sharing with you is, you know, do that without an interest of gain, honor, and praise. Don't be interested in using this wisdom just to win or to project this ego into the world. Look at this life practice that you're building as a way to eliminate your own discontentedness. That's what it's all about. It's not about these outward things. Just like you're getting these teachings at openly and freely, if you should ever choose to teach and ask for support to do so, then be sure you can set up in such a way that you're not interested in any gain, that you're not trying to acquire material wealth through sharing these teachings. You're just doing it with the intention of helping others. That's what this spiritual life is all about, is eliminating discontentedness your discontentedness, not about going out and saving the world and trying to convince other people to follow this path, but your own enlightenment. Any questions on this one? 
Looks like Ellie has a question. Where at the bottom it says, but rather the spiritual life is lived for the sake of restraint. Can you explain a little bit about restraint? What um, exactly is meant by restraint? Sure. If you think about craving, desire, attachment, restraint is almost like just the opposite. So craving, desire, attachment is how the mind is longing and yearning, having the strong eagerness, wanting something. It's pulling towards the objects of its affection. This spiritual life, you have to restrain that. It's like pulling the reins on a horse. You have to pull it back and restrain the mind. So we're restraining the mind. We're abandoning the unwholesome qualities to get this freedom from strong feelings and eliminate discontentedness. Oh, okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Doesn't look like there are any other questions for this chapter. Okay, let's go to chapter 15. Okay, um, 15. Both formally and now what the Tadatta teach is discontentness and the elimination of discontentness. So saying, monks, so proclaiming, I have been baselessly, pointlessly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some ascetic and Brahman dust. The ascetic Gautama is one who lead astray. He teaches the obliteration, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not, as I do not proclaim, so I have been viciously pointlessly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some ascetic and Brahman thus. The ascetic Gautama is one who leads astray. He teaches the obliteration, the destruction, the extermination of existing being. Mang, both formally and now what I teach is the discontentness and the elimination of discontentness. If other abuse, criticize, scold, and harass the Tagataka for that, the Tagataka on that account feel no annoying bitterness or sadness of the mind. And if other honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate the Tagata for that, the Tagata on that account feels no happiness, excitement, or elation of the mind. If the other honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate the Tagataka by that, the Tagataka on that account thinks thus they perform such service as these for the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood. Okay. Let's talk about this. Thank you, Ali. So here the Buddha is talking about other aesthetics who are around who probably aren't really deeply studying his teachings because they're misrepresenting what he's teaching. If they deeply understood what he was teaching, they wouldn't be misrepresenting it. But because there's these different camps of aesthetics and Brahmin who are sharing different things, then there are people who are gossiping and slandering the Buddha, essentially, is what this comes down to. So even a Buddha, there are people that are gossiping and slandering. So 
If you think that everyone's going to permanently understand you to a deep level of clarity, uh, it's not going to happen. So even a Buddha, people misunderstood him and people weren't taking the time to fully understand him and people were slandering and gossiping. So he set the record straight with his students, right? That aesthetic Gautama, notice he doesn't even call himself the Buddha, right? He just refers to himself as just another aesthetic, right? No ego there. People think that he leads people astray, teaching the obliteration, destruction, extermination of an existing being. So what people thought he was teaching is that once you attain enlightenment, that there is no longer any existence after enlightenment. But he doesn't teach that. And you'll see this even within the Theravada tradition, that people think that once you attain enlightenment, you no longer exist. But you're going to see in a moment, there's another chapter where he makes it clear that he doesn't teach that. He doesn't teach that once you attain enlightenment, you no longer exist. He left that as an undeclared teaching. So that's why he says he has not proclaimed that. He has not proclaimed that once you attain enlightenment, you no longer exist. So he's saying that he's been baselessly, pointlessly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented. That he teaches the obliteration, destruction, and extermination of an existing being. Because he didn't teach that. Well, what did he teach? He teaches the elimination of discontentedness. What is discontentedness? And the elimination of it. That's what he's teaching. Right? The path to enlightenment. And then he says, you know, if people talk negatively about me, and they're annoyed, they're bitter, they're sad because that's what I teach. He feels nothing about that, right? His mind isn't affected by people talking negatively about him. But also, if people speak positively, if they honor and respect and appreciate him for the fact that he's teaching the elimination of discontentedness, then he feels no happiness, excitement, or elation because of that. So if they speak negatively about him, his mind's unaffected. If they speak positively about him, his mind's unaffected because his mind's in the middle. He's not basing his inner feelings on what's happening around him based on these impermanent conditions. But then here's an interesting part towards the end. Once somebody attains enlightenment, they know their mind's progressing through the jhanas, through the stages of enlightenment. They know that their mind is getting to enlightenment. And once they do, what the Buddha is saying here is if others honor, respect, and appreciate and venerate the Tathagata for teaching the elimination of discontentedness, the Tathagata on that account thinks thus, they perform such services as these for the sake of what had earlier come to be fully understood. So what he's saying is, is if people honor, respect, and appreciate him for teaching the elimination of discontentedness, then that means they must fully understand his teachings and have attained enlightenment. Because once they progress from the unenlightened state to enlightenment, then of course they're going to honor, respect, and appreciate him for his teachings. But his mind's going to be unaffected by it. So that's that last paragraph here where he's saying that, yeah, once somebody gets to enlightenment, surely they're going to honor, respect, and appreciate him. But his mind's not affected by that whatsoever. He knows what he needs to teach, and he's teaching that, irregardless of what other people say. And a Buddha is going to 
know that they've discovered the truth through their own independent teachings. Their mind is completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and they're not going to allow the negative or the positive to affect their mind. They're just going to stay headed towards their goal, which is to share their teachings with all those who choose to learn and practice. So what questions do you guys have on this one? doesn't appear there are any questions. Okay, let's go to the next chapter. Okay, words that are just so not otherwise. From the night he fully awakened monks until the night he attains final Nibbana, in this interval, whatever he speaks, talks of, and explains, all that is just so, not otherwise. Therefore, he is called a Tathagata. As he speaks, monks, so he does. As he does, so he speaks. So this is a, uh, something that was actually shared by someone else. This wasn't shared by the actual Buddha. But essentially what they're saying here is from the time that he awakens to enlightenment until the time that he dies, in that interval, everything that he speaks and talks of and explains, all of that is the truth. That's why he's called the Tathagata, the one who's discovered the truth. Everything that he speaks of is going to be about the attainment of enlightenment. And final Nibbana is death. We call it final enlightenment or final Nibbana because you can attain enlightenment in this life and you will experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy permanently. But if you stood close to a fire as an enlightened being, you're going to feel the heat and it's going to be a little bit painful. Your mind isn't going to be discontent because of it, but you're going to still feel a little bit of pain. Just the mind's not going to react to it. It's going to respond. The mind's not going to become discontent because of that physical pain. It's not going to experience emotional pain the way you would if you were unenlightened. An unenlightened being who feels heat or has some kind of physical injury, they might cuss or be upset or angry or frustrated or annoyed because of this physical injury. But someone who's enlightened, they're still going to feel the physical pain. Their mind just isn't going to experience it the same way. It's not going to be discontent. So we call death final nibbana because this is where the body and the mind separate where now there's no more physical pain whatsoever. And so that's why we call it final nibbana. What questions do you guys have about this one, if anything? Holly asks, this is the first time I have heard mention of Gautama Buddha's death. Is there any record of how he died and if anyone was with him at the time of death? Just curious. Yeah, well, you'll get to that at the end of this book. Uh, where we have his last words from the Pali canon, I don't see anything that's written that says exactly why he died. But from everything that I understand, he just died from old age. He just uh, laid his head down and went to sleep. He knew three months before he was going to die that he was going to die. And he told people three months ahead of time that he was going to die. And there's a whole bunch of story around that. And there's actually some of it is written into the Pali canon. By the time he gets through the three months, he delivers his last words, and it's a teaching. He actually teaches impermanence as his last words, explaining the decay and the impermanence of his own body. So you'll see, we'll talk about that as we get to the end, uh, where we talk about the final passing of the Buddha. No other questions on this chapter? All right. 
Let's go to chapter 17, the Tathagata's speech. So too, Prince, such speech as the Tathagata knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others, such speech the Tathagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is also unwelcome and disagreeable to others, such speech the Tathagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, but which is unwelcome and disagreeable to others, the Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial, but which is welcome and agreeable to others, such speech the Tathagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tathagata knows to be true and correct, but unbeneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others, such speech the Tathagata does not speak. Such speech as the Tathagata does kn knows to be true, correct, and beneficial, and which is welcome and agreeable to others, the Tathagata knows the time to use such speech. Why is that? Because the Tathagata has compassion for all beings. Okay, so this is a refinement of right speech. What we saw in the Eightfold Path, there's the five factors of well-spoken speech, which I suggest people work on that. And then there's this, which gets even deeper into it. But this is really kind of a, an elaboration of the five factors of well-spoken speech. Because what you see here is, of course, if it's untrue, if it's incorrect, if it's unbeneficial, the Buddha is not going to speak that. And if it's unwelcomed and disagreeable, he's only going to speak something that's unwelcomed and disagreeable if it's true, correct, and beneficial. But he's going to know the proper time to say that, right? But even if something is true, correct, and beneficial, and it's welcomed and agreeable, he's going to know the proper time to use that speech too. So it's all about the timing, right? So this is all part of the five factors of well-spoken speech, which are right here in this chapter. And they're explained in volume one in a lot of detail. So what I suggest people focus on is focus on the five factors of well-spoken speech. And if you focus on this, you can then, after you develop this really well, you can add this to it if you like. But you wouldn't be able to really develop this until you get the five factors of well-spoken speech for you know a year or two and really refine with that and practicing that to perfection and then add this to it any questions on this chapter doesn't look like there are any questions on this chapter okay so now we'll go to 18. the tathagata taught very very few compared to numerous things he had known on one occasion, the perfectly enlightened one was residing at Kusambi in a Sim Simsaba grove. Then the perfectly enlightened one took up a few Simba Simsaba leaves in his hand and addressed the monks thus. What do you think, monks? Which is more numerous? These few Simsaba leaves that I have taken up in my hand, or those in the Simsapa grove overhead. Venerable Sayer, the Simsapa leaves 
the, the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his hand are few, but those in the Simsapa grove overhead are numerous. So two monks, the things I have directly known, but have not taught you are numerous, while the things I have taught you are few. And why monks, have I not taught you those many things? Because they are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and do not lead to fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge experience, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. Therefore, I have not taught them. And what monks have I taught? I have taught this is discontentedness. I have taught this is the cause of discontentedness. I have taught this is the elimination of discontentedness. I have taught this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And why monks have I taught this? Because this is beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life and leads to fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. Therefore, I have taught this. Okay, this is a very famous teaching from the Buddha where he is going through a forest with monks and he reaches down and picks up some leaves in his hands and he asks them, you know, what is more? the leaves overhead and all the trees of the forest or these leaves in my hand and this monks reply of course the the leaves in overhead are so much more numerous than the few that you've taken up in your hand and he says well so too is the the knowledge of course or the wisdom that he has to share with them that leads to enlightenment so the leaves overhead represent all the wisdom that the Buddha has as part of his independent journey to enlightenment. A perfectly enlightened one has this deep, deep, profound wisdom. But the few leaves in his hand that he takes up represents all that he really needs to truly teach in order to help you awaken to enlightenment. And he only teaches those few leaves that are in his hands because that's what you need to awaken and all these other leaves he doesn't need to teach all of that stuff all that other wisdom his only interest is to help you to benefit on this path to enlightenment so rather than to try to teach everything that he knew he's just going to teach what it requires to awaken to enlightenment so what are those things once again he points to the four noble truths and he says you know this is what i taught is the elimination of discontentedness. Any questions on this one? It doesn't appear there are any questions. Okay. Now this one will connect all of this for us and help you see where he was going with all of this. Teacher David, towards the end, I did have a question on um, the Tathagata speech. If we could go back to that at the end. Sure. You gave guidance to do the five factors of well-spoken speech before attempting this. My question is, sir, um, the difference between the two. Um, really, the only thing I'm seeing is if it's uh, unwelcome and disagreeable, 
or welcome and agreeable the time, the proper time. So on the five factors of well-spoken speech, I'm just thinking that's a subcategory under proper timing. Um, the way I originally thought of the five factors of well-spoken speech with proper time is who you're talking to. Um, if they're in the right mental state, the other, the other person is emotions. If it's if they're approachable, so if if we were to add um, the tatagada's uh, speech, it, the only thing I'm seeing is a subcategory under proper time, or is there something else I'm missing? Nope, you're right. It's all about deeply knowing the person you're speaking to, and knowing what is unwelcomed and disagreeable versus welcomed and agreeable, and having that level of clarity to know that what you're about to share with somebody requires some awakenedness in your own mind and a lot of knowledge about the person you're speaking to. So that's why I suggest that you develop all the rest of the, the path, specifically the five factors of well-spoken speech, before you look at adding this to your practice of right speech. Because those things are like prerequisites to be able to practice this. I understand. Thank you, Venerable Sir. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can go on to the chapter if you're ready. Sure. Simile of a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison. Suppose, uh, I'm going to have trouble pronouncing that. Can I just call him student? Suppose, sure. Suppose student, a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and his friends and companions his kinsmen and relatives brought a surgeon to treat him. The man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. And he would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name of him, of the man who wounded me. Until I know whether the man who wounded me was tall or short or middle height, until I know whether the man who wounded me was dark or brown or golden skin, until I know whether the bowstring that wounded me was fibre or reed or sinew or hemp or bark, until I know whether the shaft that wounded me was wild or cultivated, until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft that wounded me was fitted, whether those of a vulture of a heron or of a hawk or a peacock or a stork until I know with what kind of sinew the shaft that wounded me was down, whether that of an ox or a buffalo or a deer or a monkey, until I know what kind of arrowhead it was that wounded me, whether spiked or razor tipped or curved or barbed or calf tooth or lancet shaped. All this would still not be known to the man while he would so do student. If anyone should say thus, I will not lead holy life under the enlightened one until the enlightened one declares to me, the world is eternal and the world is not eternal. The world is finite. The world is infinite. The soul is the same as the body and the soul is one thing and the body another. And after death, the Tathagata exists. After death, the Tathagata does not exist. And after death, a Tathagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. That would still remain undeclared by the Tathagata. And meanwhile, that person would die. Therefore, student, 
Remember, what I have left undeclared is undeclared. And remember, what I have declared as declared. And what have I left undeclared? The world is eternal, and the world is not eternal. The world is finite, and the world is infinite. The soul is the same as the body, and the soul is one thing and the body another. And after death, a Tathagata exists, and after death, a Tathagata does not exist. And after death, a Tathagata both exists and does not exist. And after death, a Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. I have left undeclared. And what have I declared? This is discontentedness. This is the cause of discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. I have declared. Why have I declared that? Because it is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to liberation, to freedom, strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to nirvana. That is why I declared it. Okay, so here we've got a simile where someone's been struck with a arrow that has poison and this person doesn't want the arrow to be taken out until he knows all this information and then he'll let the arrow be taken out. So the Buddha is using this as a simile because every being has been essentially shot with the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance. And if somebody were to want all the answers to all the questions before they will actually choose to practice the teachings, then surely they will die before they ever start practicing the teachings or that poison is removed from the body or from the mind. So the Buddha is basically saying that you need to get on this path, start this path, start learning, reflecting, and practicing the path because as you're progressing on the path, there's going to be certain answers to your questions that come out that you can't really know all the answers before you actually start practicing. You actually need to incorporate your learning, reflection, and practice and see that as part of the journey, and you're going to be learning along the way. And the Buddha uses this simile to also share what he left as undeclared. And these are his undeclared teachings, which I share in volume one, and they're shared here as well. And then he shares, you know, what has he declared? He's declared how to eliminate discontentedness is what he's declared. So this is where, you know, sometimes even I get contacted by a student and they have a million and one questions and they, they're not interested in learning, reflecting or practicing until all these questions are answered. And at a certain point, you know, I share with them, like, you know, at some point you're going to have to decide to start practicing the teachings because me just giving you the answer to things isn't what's going to awaken the mind. You need to actually cultivate the wisdom in order to awaken the mind. So surely a being will die and be reborn again and again and again if they think that they're going to ask the teacher all the questions. And then once they get their answers, okay, now I'll start practicing. Um, so the practice is really important as part of the path. Any questions on this chapter? I don't believe there are any questions for this chapter. Okay, the last one for today, we'll go ahead and 
see who would like to do this one. Yes, teacher. Instruction usually presented to his disciples. How does Master Gautama guide his disciples? And how is Master Gautama's instruction usually presented to his disciples? This is how I guide my disciples, Agi Visana. And this is how my, my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. Monks, material form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations, choices, decisions are impermanent. Con consciousness is impermanent. Monks, material form is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception is not self. Volitional formations, choices, decisions are not self. Consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent. All things are not self. That is the way I guide my disciples. And that's how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. Okay, so here if you understand the five aggregates, I think we talked about these last class, form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. This is what makes a being a being. This is how we know what is a living being and what's not. The Buddha is saying, you know, all of these things are impermanent and none of these things are the self. So essentially what you come to is why hold on to them? Why cling to them? Why crave form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness if it's all impermanent anyway? Holding on to all this stuff is what's going to cause the discontentedness. And none of this stuff is the permanent self. So the Buddha is saying here that this is how he guides his students, essentially teaching the three universal truths. These are two of the three universal truths. So any questions on this one? Yes, teacher. We have a question on Facebook from Rich. I have read that the Buddha taught to admit guilt, but I have also seen, I have also been told aside from Buddhism that you teach people how to treat you. If I am having issues with a person is, admit, is admitting a guilt right view, am I telling the person that it's okay to treat me poorly? There's no part of Buddhism or this path to enlightenment where we should be teaching other people how to treat us. What we need to do is train our mind to be unaffected no matter what's going on around us. All we can do is make personal decisions for ourselves. If someone's treating you in an unkind way or impolite or disrespectful, your only choice is, do I remain in a relationship with this person or not? You can't change them. You can't make them a better person. They have to choose to do that themselves. If you crave, if you desire for them to be a better person and you're holding on to the hope that they will be, then this is your own craving, desire, attachment, and you're going to experience discontentedness. The other person's disrespectful speech isn't what's causing your mind to be discontent and feel that guilt. It's your craving, your mental longing with strong eagerness, wanting people to talk to you polite and kind. The Buddhist teachings aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong, even though 
we use right speech, right action, so forth. It's really like righteous or wholesome speech, wholesome actions. What we're talking about is, sure, it would be wholesome and proper for everyone to treat you respectfully, but with impermanence, you're not going to have people permanently treating you respectfully. It's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if every time somebody treats you disrespectful, if you tried to train them to, to talk to you respectfully, or if every time someone was disrespectful, your mind became discontent, then your mind isn't liberated. It's not free. That means every time somebody talks to you disrespectfully, your mind is upset or it feels guilty or some other discontent emotion or feeling. So this training in this path is to be liberated from this craving, anger, ignorance, unknowing of true reality, where if someone speaks to you polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, your mind doesn't get so excited and elated because of that. And then also, if somebody speaks to you impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, your mind won't get sad or angry or feel guilty. But instead, the mind can reside in the middle and be unaffected by what's going on around you. But this takes training. It takes dedicated, consistent, ongoing training. So that's what this whole path to enlightenment is about, is layering the teachings so that you can gradually understand them and practice them piece by piece. It's a very comprehensive approach to training the mind with many pieces that are part of it. Any other questions on this one? Um, Teacher David, I might be missing something in this last chapter. How, how is it that the aggregates uh, were mentioned here in the manner in which instruction was delivered by the Buddha? So here he's talking about form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. Those are the five aggregates. And he's saying, you know, these things are impermanent. And then he's also saying these same things are not the self because what the mind wants to do and what's causing the mind discontentedness is the mind is holding on and clinging to these things. The mind is clinging to form and feeling, perceptions, relational formations and consciousness. It thinks that it's permanent. That's what's causing the discontentedness. And also, the unenlightened mind, it thinks that this physical form is the self, or these feelings, perceptions, decisions, or consciousness is the self. So the Buddha is guiding people as part of his teachings that these things are impermanent, they are not the self, and let them go. Don't cling to them. Let them go. Okay, and this is within the context of the method of how he delivered his instruction or just his instruction? Yes, that's part of his whole path to enlightenment. As part of the Four Noble Truths, that's his whole path starts with the Four Noble Truths. So the way that he guides his students is to understand that these five aggregates are impermanent and these five aggregates are not the self. Yes, I, I did. I unraveled what was confusing to me. Thank you. Yeah, you're um, welcome. There are any more questions for this chapter? All right. That's the last one for today. I appreciate you guys hanging out considering it went a little bit longer than normal. But as you can see, today we had the full path as part of our 
class. So it was, I felt really important to just be sure we kind of go through that. But as you guys know, in the group learning program and in volume one of this book uh, series, I go through the AFL path in a lot more detail. Today, I covered it in about 30, 40 minutes and just kind of breezed right through it. And we had some questions, but I think that was important. And like I mentioned, you really can't learn the Eiffel Path too much. You really need to know that backwards, forwards, left, right, up, down, like the back of your hand. Going forward for next Saturday, it's going to be chapters 21 through chapter 30. So read those prior to class. And you're welcome to read these again, the ones that we just read. You might pick up some things now that we've talked about them. You might pick up some things again. But if you don't have that time, then just be sure you read chapters 21 through 30, and we'll cover those next week. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be studying chapter 24 of volume one, which is misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So thank you all for joining. Really appreciate that you guys are being diligent with your studies. I'll see you either this Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. Have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.